For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Lord, we hear in your word that you are the I am, the one who will be with your people. Lord, that you are the one who hears the suffering of your people and come down to deliver them. And it's not just a story in the Old Testament, it's our story too, Lord. And I pray that tonight as we meditate on your word, that it could become our story, that we remember that we were people in bondage and that you delivered us as well. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good evening on this beautiful, beautiful day. My wife reminded me that it's only going to be like this for six more weeks or something, so we should enjoy it while we can. It's kind of grim, but true. It's, it's going to get unbearably hot at some point, but here it is beautiful, so we are thankful for that. Um, we are in the season of Lent. This is the third week of Lent. I'm sure if you were practicing Lent, you were aware, well aware of how far we are into it and you're counting down the days. Today, we're gonna to talk about stories and how stories shape us and shape how we understand who we are and how stories can shape us in what we aspire to be. How do stories shape our understanding of ourselves? Um, we have stories as individuals from our own lives, our childhoods, our time growing up that we look back on and they are formative. We, there are moments of decision, there are moments of difficulty or trauma, and they've shaped us in particular ways. We have stories um, that shape our understanding as families, units, things that we've done together, um, places that we've gone, schools that we've gone to, collective stories. As Americans, we might think of the signing of the Declaration of Independence as a formative story that we look back on and say, this is what it means to be an American. Or if you are a Texan, we might remember the Alamo and it's a story that tells us about who Texans are and what they do and how they overcome odds. A great story, remember the Alamo. 
stories matter and they shape our understandings of ourselves. That's what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians in this passage um, that we have before us today. He's telling them that this great story of the exodus, of the delivery of God's people from bondage is not just the story that happened to Israel, it's their story as the Corinthians. And we got to hear that prelude in Exodus chapter three today where God remembers the suffering of his people and he comes down. His great movement towards his people, that that's what God always does. That's the picture of the incarnation too. God hears the sufferings of his people and he comes towards us makes his dwelling among us. So Paul offers to the Corinthians a meditation on the story of the Exodus and he draws some themes from it and he says, this story is your story. It's also a wilderness story and we're in Lent and Lent is a season in the wilderness. And Paul in these verses is telling us what can go wrong in the wilderness, how it can go badly. Look at verses one through five. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the spiritual same, drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. There's a lot in there, but it's a picture of Israel passing through the Red Sea. And he's saying that was Israel's baptism. They were washed with water. Their enemies were drowned in that water, put to death in that water. They were baptized into Moses. And they had their own kind of communion because they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink, the manna from heaven. These two sacraments are given to us in a picture form and a type in the Exodus. And that's one reason that he's saying their story is our story. We have our own baptism. We're baptism, baptized into Christ. We have our own spiritual food and spiritual drink. We have the Eucharist. But then there's the warning. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Or you could translate overthrown, laid low. They were laid low. I like that as well. They were laid low in the wilderness, even though they had the gracious provision of God, even though they had means of grace with them, spiritual food, spiritual drink, this baptism. So in verse 12, Paul says, take heed, pay attention. It's not just a story. It's our story. What happened to them can happen to us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall, lest he be laid low is as well. So the Exodus is more than just a story. It's a master story. It's a type. Look at verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I want to give you a different translation from a commentator to draw out a couple of words that I wanna pay some attention to. This is another translation of verse six. These things happened as formative models for us so that we will not crave evil things as they did. I wanna pay attention to the words formative models and the word crave. What's a formative model? This commentator says, a formative model is a classical norm or example that plays a special role in the formation of those to whom it is presented as a paradigm. Only a New Testament commentator could put it quite that way. <laughs> a classical norm, meaning a, a normative story, meaning it's not just a story, it's 
telling you something about how you're supposed to live. And it's presented to a group of people as a model, as a paradigm. The most formative story, the master story for Israel is the story of the Exodus, being delivered from bondage. We said it tonight in the Ten Commandments, right? I am the God who delivered you from bondage. Because I'm that God, these are the things that you don't do and don't do. You behave in this way because I'm this God and you're my people. It's the master story. It's the formative model. Again, as Americans, we might think of stories of the founding fathers as formative for us, like Paul Revere, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, in the ancient world, stories like the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, these were foundation stories. They were stories that Greeks looked to and said, this is what it means to be a Greek. The Romans look at the Aeneid and they say, this is what it means to be a Roman. And these can be bad stories too that we tell ourselves, bad stories that we allow to form us that act as formative models. I came across one of these kinds of stories this week and I wanna read a quote to you from it. This is from a recent article in The Atlantic called Workism is Making Americans Miserable. I don't know if you read it, it's definitely worth reading. It's by Derek Thompson. And this is what he says about workism. What is workism? Some people worship beauty, some people worship political identities, and others worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for our congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. The problem with this gospel, he says, interesting, the problem with this gospel, it's meant to be good news, but it's not. What's the problem with this gospel? The problem with this gospel is your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anybody more productive or creative, they, they make people stressed tired and bitter. But the overwork myths, myth is another word for formative stories, survive because they justify the extreme wealth created for a small group of elite techies. I like that. This is a gospel. It's presented to us as good news. If you work hard enough, then you will find your meaning, your identity, your purpose. All that life has to give, it will come to you through work. That's a story that we tell ourselves in this culture. It's, a, it's an especially American story. What this article goes on to enumerate is all the ways that Americans are more prone to this than any other developed country. How we worship work. What a terrible God. <laughs> but we do it all the time because it's a story that is told to us that if you want meaning, if you want purpose, then you should do this. So the question for us, just thinking of this as an example, is who are our formative models? What stories are we telling ourselves about what is good, about what is true, about what is beautiful, about what is pursu worth pursuing? Who do we look to and desire to be? Who are the people that we are looking at and say, if I only could be that, that person, if I could only have what they have, if I could only do what they do? Or to use the second word that we're concentrating on, the question is, what do we crave? What do we crave? What do we most desire? Who do we crave to be? This same commentator says of craving that it is sin related to misdirected desire. 
sin related to a misdirected desire. And so I've dropped the S word, so now I need to talk about the S word, sin. Sin and redemption. Um, What is sin? Sin is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is more fundamental than that. It's our orientation. It's a way of being in the world. One theologian puts it this way. Sin is an autonomy of the will that puts the self in the center and uses everything else as a means to the self as an end. I'm at the center of the universe and everything else exists to serve me. That's what sin is. That's what it was from the garden onward. It is our fundamental orientation. Augustine puts this in a much more succinct and vivid way. Sin is the self turned in on the self, not the self turned outward to the world in love. Autonomy is the great sin of humanity. That's our modern word for pride. So the greatest temptation for us is to put ourselves in the center and if we are in relationship with God, then to treat God as a means to an end, to use God to get the other things that we really crave, whatever that might be. The things we believe that will truly satisfy us, we're asking God to give us, to be the means by which we attain what we really want, what we really desire, what we really crave. And this is why Paul concludes this passage by saying, beloved, flee from idols. Because the word that sums all of that up is idolatry. The temptation to worship something, even the self besides God. And that's precisely what he lays before them. He lays before them four cravings that Israel had instead of craving God. The first is idolatry, the second is sexual immorality, the third is doubt, and the fourth is grumbling. Four cravings. He says, take heed, look at their story, look at how they were laid low in the wilderness so that you can pay attention and not take the same missteps. Why is he saying this to the Corinthians? Why do they need to be reminded of this? Why do they need to take heed? Well, one of the great themes in the letter of the Corinthians is that there's this group of people in this church who think that they're the strong. We have strong consciences. So we can go to the temples where there's idolatry and we can eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols because we know, we have knowledge that those idols aren't real. And Paul in chapter eight says, yeah, that might be so, but be careful. Because when you go to the temples, those temples are telling you a story. When you go to the temples, those idols are telling you a story. They're giving you a formative model. And he's telling the strong among the Corinthians that they need to take heed. And I think that's the message to us because our temptation is to say, idolatry isn't a problem anymore. We're, We're secular people in the West. We live in modernity. Idols have been all cast down. That is not our problem. And Paul would say to us, take heed because idolatry is related not to stone images that we bow down before, but to our cravings, our desires. Workism is an idol. And there are stories connected to those idols, stories that those idols tell us. So we can fool ourselves into believing that because we don't have explicit idolatry in our culture, literal temples, that this is a tie we don't have to worry about, that Paul isn't talking to us. 
And to us, Paul might sound like an alarmist. He might sound puritanical. He sounds totally out of touch. But idolatry is always a problem because craving is always a problem. Desire, misdirected desire is always a problem. This is another quote from a New Testament scholar. Idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. To answer the question of idolatry is to say, what do I crave? What do I desire besides God? That is a Lenten question. That's what Lent is for. It's a gracious space that God invites us into to ask that question. So we don't forget Psalm 103 when we're asking this question. The Lord, forget not his benefits. He forgives all our sins. He heals our iniquities. He crowns us. Forget not the Lord to whom invites us to ask that question. He doesn't want to expose us to shame us. He wants to redirect our desires towards him, redirect our craving towards him. So Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Play is a euphemism for orgy. If there's any word that sounds less like orgy, it's play, but in Hebrew, that's how it works, right? It's a euphemism for having an idolatrous orgy. And what Paul is talking about is that there's a connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. So the first thing he talks about is idolatry. And the second thing he talks about is sexual immorality. The fundamental way that the Bible describes the relationship between the two is God talks to his people and says, you're adulterers. So he uses this image of sexual immorality to describe what it is to worship something other than, God's, uh, other than God. So again, we might think that there's no connection. Well, okay, maybe I'll grant idolatry is a problem, but there's no connection between that and sexual immorality. But the scripture testifies that there's fundamentally connected and it actually goes both ways. So when the people of God create this golden idol, an orgy follows quickly. <laughs> One follows the other. And then the reverse is true for Solomon, right? He has this huge harem, invites all these people from all over the world who have their false gods to be a part of his harem. And what is Solomon led to? He's led to idolatry through the door of sexual immorality. For us, the connection between idolatry and sexual morality is related, again, to this idol of the self. Because if we worship the self, if our idol is the self, then we're gonna start to think about sex through the lens of the self. But that's not the way we're supposed to think about sex. But if we're tempted that way, it means that we are tempted to think that sex is about self-determination, self-expression. And if I worship myself, then sex becomes about me and for me. But this, of course, runs counter to the whole biblical understanding of sex as the fruitful expression of love between the married man and the woman who are themselves a picture of Christ and the church. See, Paul is saying when you take one misstep, there's a tumbling block, right? Because the next thing maybe doesn't seem as bad, it's doubt. But if you're worshiping something else, looking to something else for fulfillment, then of course you're gonna start to doubt the goodness of God. And then of course you're gonna start grumbling when he doesn't give you what you think you deserve. These things are all connected. They're a tumbler, one after the other. And this is why Paul says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
You don't even mess with it. And idols come to us in the form of stories. That's it, boiled down. That's the one thing you can take home with you. Idols come to us, offer themselves to us in the form of stories. The story of workism is offering us the idol of work, saying, if you'll just sacrifice everything for me, then you'll be fulfilled. And like the article said, it can be our children. It can be pleasure. It can be wealth. It can be any number of things that we crave. Crave is such a strong word. It's not a neutral word. When you crave something, you have to have it. In the book of Genesis, there's the fight between Rachel and Leah for who's gonna have more kids. And Rachel's not having any kids. And she basically says, give me a kid or I'll die. That's a way you know you have a misdirected desire. I have to have this or I'll die, right? We may not put it in those stark of terms, but there are things in our lives where like, I can't live without this. That's our way of putting it. I can't live without this. And those stories teach us to crave. So the question before us is, what are the temples in our culture? Where are the places that are inviting us in to worship? What are the idols that are connected to those temples? And that might seem too abstract, so let me put it this way. What people, places, things, ideas are promising to fulfill you? What people, places, things, ideas are making promises to you that they will bring you meaning, that they will bring you success, that they will bring you fulfillment? This is a simple, but it is a probing question. Again, it is a Lenten kind of question. And God invites us graciously to ask that question so that he can truly fulfill us, not so that he can shame us, not so that he can take away something that we really want, but so that he can give us what we actually need. And that, again, is the story of the Exodus, the people of God in the wilderness being graciously sustained by him, being given spiritual food, being given spiritual drink, and being sustained by the spiritual rock. Paul has that throwaway line, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What, Paul, are you talking about? There's a lot of layers to what's going on here, and it's not totally understood what he's doing, but there was a tradition in thinking of the rock following the people of Israel as being God's wisdom. And already in the the letter of Corinthians, uh, Paul has drawn an explicit parallel between the wisdom of God and Christ, saying Christ is the wisdom of God. So he's sort of playing with that idea right there. It's something that they would be familiar with. But really at the heart of it, it's this story of God hearing the cries of his people coming down to deliver them out of bondage. That's the master story. That's the story that shapes everything. And that's the story that God tells in Christ, that he is the one who comes down because he hears the suffering of his people to deliver us from bondage. Idolatry is still our great enemy. We can fool ourselves in believing because we're modern and live in the secular West in an advanced democracy with an advanced economy, that those things are just for pagan old times and they don't affect us. 
but it's about worship. It's about what we crave. It's about desire. And there's something at stake. And Jesus is not just our life coach. Jesus is not an add-on that we can take or leave depending on how it works out, whether or not he gives me what I really want. He is our only path through the wilderness. He is the rock. He is the rock that sustains his people in the wilderness. He is my spiritual food. He is my spiritual drink. He gives his life to me and says, take, eat. This is my body. Take, drink. This is my blood. He invites us into the waters of baptism so that our enemies might drown in the water and we might be baptized into him. He is the rock. He is the one who leads us through the wilderness. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for stories and the way that they shape us. And we thank you that you gave us the story of your people to show us your character, your nature, your desire to graciously provide for us, even in the midst of the wilderness. Lord, I pray that each of us would accept your gracious invitation to ask ourselves what might be a scary question. What do we really crave? What do we really desire? What are we asking to fulfill us? And Holy Spirit, I pray that even now you would impress upon our hearts those things that we desire more than you. Not to shame us, not to condemn us, but to invite us into repentance and through that repentance to invite us into life. We ask this for the sake of your gracious son. Amen.